can only see from my perspective. I cannot see from your perspective. I need you to see from your perspective and then be in conversation with me. And in this work of loving one another, we share our perspectives and, and allow that process to shape us, to form us, to grow in us the fruit of God's Hello and welcome to the Together podcast, a conversation about faith, justice and how to change the world. I'm Dan and today I'm joined by Kat and Chris. How are you doing guys? Good. Fantastic. So today we're hearing from Renee August, a veteran of the anti-apartheid movement, Anglican priest and reconciliation trainer. She shares what it means to approach the Bible with humility and how that can create a more just world. But before we dive into that, a couple of bits to feed back on from our last podcast episode. We were inundated <laughs> with two responses. One was from Dan's mum. To the other was his cat. Yeah. <laughs> to the question that Cat posed. Cat, can you remind us what the que- uh, the question was? The dilemma. Yeah, well, I asked a serious question, um, whether you use a teaspoon to take out your tea bag when you make a cup of tea, or do you just pick it out with your fingers and then kind of just dab it and then throw it in the bin? Which is ridiculous. What do you mean? I mean, we discussed it, so you can hear you it use, back on. You use your hands, obviously. So we're not, we're not going to just repeat that conversation, but I had a couple of people who had the same responses as me thinking you were literally putting your bare fingers in a cup of tea that was boiling hot and just fishing around a bit for the tea bag and then just scooping it out, which you, you did clarify and say that's not quite, quite what you meant. But after that overwhelming response of two people, by popular demand, Cat, we're giving you your own segment called Cat's Questions, where you get to ask us Different dilemmas, would you rather's... Um, it's about time, guys. It's it, about time. You've been waiting for this moment I for so I have been long. waiting for this moment. So. I've got a good one today, guys. I've got okay. a good one. What is Are we it ready? today, Kat? Go. So today we've got a would you rather, right? So would you rather never drink any other drink but water mm-hmm. or never eat anything that's been done in the... cooked in the oven? Wait, what? Wait, say that again. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I'm drinking only water for the rest of my yeah. life. Yeah. So would you rather only, only cold ever food? D- not cold food, <laughs> but you can't have anything that's been baked or cooked in the oven. So you can have boiled pasta. We can't mm. have pizza. You can't have chicken wings. I'm going for I'm going for oven food. Well, you would rather not eat oven food. Wait, no, I mean, I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather have other food and just yeah. drink water for the rest of my life. Yeah. Like, I think that's not worth it. No. See, I don't know, because you could be, you could probably find some great food. Mm. Enough to, uh, don't give me that nah. face, Chris. <laughs> nah, because so, oven is beautiful. Oven <laughs> is like, life. It's what, like. What about a toaster? Nah, nah. Wait, that's not You oven. can't toast, but you can't toast brownies no but you could toast bagels yeah bagel bagels there's another one there's another one right so with bagels when you talk about bagels yeah when you um do you use both sides separately or do you squish them together as a sandwich when you toast them you gotta you gotta it's dependent on what you're doing at that moment like whether you're having like a like a a cream cheese salmon Mm. moment 
that's got to be a sandwich. There's no other way around that. Nah. But if you... <laughs> what do you mean, do you nah? Mean <laughs> but you get so much more if you do them separately because then you have like two it's sandwiches and then one. No, because you could do double amount or like you could do double the amount of the sandwich as well. No, but then it's really big to like bite into. <laughs> but that's why you have it as a sandwich. Now we're getting to the real question. Forget the would you rather. This is this is the crux of it. This is the goal. <laughs> so if you had a certain amount of salmon. Yeah. And that's a fixed amount of salmon. <laughs> I still separate it because you eat, it takes you longer to eat it. So it feels like you're eating more. <laughs> but I feel like it's, it's less satisfying to eat it yeah. that way. And also if you have more than one filling. So if you have chicken, bacon and avocado. Nah, that would have never happened. <laughs> that's too much. That would never happen. You can literally go into like a shop and find that right now. That's so greedy. Chicken, bacon and avocado. <laughs> I that's probably one of my favorite change. What does that even mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, save the chickens. I think, I think it's all about filling. So butter, Philadelphia. I would have them as separate halves. Mm -hmm. Any any related filling, then it becomes a sandwich for sure. Mm. Because you don't. So if you had like a BLT sandwich, yeah. do you have like two slices of bread? I just don't have that BLT. kind of sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> not in a bagel. Just stacked up. Not no, but, but I'm talking about a bread. So if you no, if you we're had talking a, about bagels in particular. Yeah, know, but, but bagels are a type of bread. <laughs> we're getting way too emotional about this. I think it's time to move on. Wait, I'm cutting you, it there. Do you have like an aversion to wraps just before like we move on? <laughs> are you like, are you like, don't wrap them up. Yeah, you just, you just eat it like open. <laughs> It's not a bagel, is it? And you don't toast wraps. Do you eat? Do you eat? Sometimes you do. Do you eat fajitas just unwrapped? <laughs> I have done that before. <laughs> you actually? I just, just skip it out like a little bowl. <laughs> I gotta balance it in. Uh, I feel like we're going to need to put a time limit on these <laughs> segments because they just descend very quickly into. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you, Cat, for that question. You're welcome. You're welcome. Are they always going to be food and drink related? Um. You'll have to wait and see. Great. (laughs) Keep us on the edge of our seats. So thanks, Kat. Before we get into the interview with Renee, it's time for What in the World? Welcome to What in the World, where we discuss some of the big talking points from the recent news stories. Kat, what are we talking about today? So, unless you've been hiding under a rock somewhere, you've probably heard about the coronavirus outbreak. While some are panic buying and others are continuing with their normal activities, it is clear that it's a big issue as health organisations and leaders around the world figure out what to do. Obviously, none of us are scientists ourselves, so we won't give you any more details than what's already out there. But what's interesting is how rare it is to see such a huge global response to an issue. It makes me wonder, what would the world look like if we took the same global response with issues affecting people in poverty? Like the climate crisis. What do you guys think? I think it's really interesting seeing it unfold, isn't it? Because there's, mm. there's, mm. So, there's such a global response. Um, and you just imagine, even though corona is spreading, mm. that the global response and working together yeah. is limiting it and is having a positive sure. effect. We can't see it at the moment because of of how things are spreading and how it's turning out yeah. but um, imagine a global response to some of those big issues yeah. like yeah. if the same kind of severity was taken yeah. and the same seriousness was given to it what could be achieved is mm. quite an incredible yeah. thought I think one of the things that's just like 
it seems like really obvious is that you just listen to the people who know what they're talking about. Yeah. You listen to the experts. So obviously with coronavirus, like you have doctors and well, I don't know, scientists, medical people who are like, yeah, this is what is happening. This is how we can reduce that. Unfortunately, I don't know why it is with the climate crisis where that is not mirrored. Like mm. you have people who literally dedicated their lives to understanding our planet and, you know, the effects of our global systems on it. Mm. And they're just ignored. Yeah, that's yeah. just weird. I don't. So, I mean, fundamentally, if we were to see like a similar response to cli- to the climate crisis, it would take world leaders listening to experts. Mm. Yeah, well, it's the same with like the whole public education. Like, you would have seen that sign in the bathroom where it says, first of all, I saw one that said, if your hands are visibly dirty." Wash your hands. Slow down. Say that again. If your hands are visibly dirty, like visibly dirty, your hands should never be visibly dirty. I'm sorry. You should be washing your hands. So true. Like, unless you work on like, or, you know, if you work somewhere that's like outside your building or whatever. But if you're, this is in that office, in the bathroom. And I'm like, your hands should never be visibly dirty. But the thing is, like, you see it everywhere. So like, why, why are things that are, have been impacting millions of people around mm-hmm. the world mm-hmm. for years on on approaching approach the same in terms of public education mm-hmm. you know like maybe we should have signs in the toilets that tell you the reality of climate change yeah mm-hmm. i think so and, and you know even just around the amount of water you're using in the bathroom yeah. it's a really trivial like example but in all of the different places you encounter you know i i was at the train station the other day and saw um, uh, a huge kind of digital display advert about mm. it. Mm. I'd love to see more of those about public transport mm. and about the adverse effects of everybody driving, what would happen mm. if everybody got the train. Sure. And it's doable. And I know there have been campaigns like that, but why can't it be as as, as kind of widespread in, in some of these examples? Sure. I think I think it just shows that, you know, to put a stop to issues continuing, it requires everyone being involved. Yeah. So... And it's always a difficult one. Like we've had this question on the on the podcast a few times when talking to people about, you know, do you <clears throat> do you look upwards to like people in leadership and say, well, you need to do something to stop this happening, or do you look to, mm. towards us as like just everyday citizens to be like, oh, we need to do what we can to to change things. Mm. And I think the answer is it needs both. It really yeah, does 100%. need both. You know, like with coronavirus, if someone like has it and they just like walk into work as normal. It's like at some point there's not anything like the government can do. It, that is yeah. down to individuals. And so when it comes to the climate crisis, you know, I would love to see people. I'd love to see, of course, like world leaders and and governments put in certain restrictions of things that stop the climate crisis continuing. But also seeing everyday people kind of respond as well mm. and take their part of the responsibility. I think the really interesting thing to observe is how we always talking about togetherness and connectivity and just being aware of our global neighbours beyond the bubble of our everyday life. Mm. The interesting thing that we're faced with at the moment is that this, in being a kind of global pandemic, um, enters into our bubble Mm. and we become a lot more concerned Mm. about it. Even to the point when, this is obviously a serious factor, the economy is being significantly impacted Mm. by our response, but it's it's an important response um, to take. But it's an easier response because the, the threat is more on our doorstep. Mm. And I think there's a really interesting parallel with saying, OK, climate change poses this huge uh, threat to, mm. to the world. Mm. But because it's not on our doorstep, it's easier for us to 
uh, not look at mm. limiting air flight, not mm. holding emergency meetings with politicians, yeah. all this kind of thing. Um, it's interesting and a little bit sad how you can see the difference because yeah. it's an, it's a, a real threat to to us here yeah. for sure. And also, like I think I found it really it's quite inspiring to see companies that are responding to people as well. So like mm. what Chris is saying, you know, like if we all come together and speak up. Um, we can be heard. Mm. So I saw on the news the other day that one of I can't I can't remember which bank it was, but one of the banks have basically announced that they will um, allow um, people with mortgages to defer their uh, payments for mm. three months if they're affected by coronavirus. Mm. And it's like you can see actual companies are responding to yeah. people's needs. So if we speak out, speak up for people that are voiceless, they will be heard. Definitely. Thanks for your thoughts, guys. And generally, please, uh, everyone do take care. And let's remember not to panic, but take necessary precautions to stay healthy. Now, on a different note, it's time for Chris's interview with Renee August. Hi, my name is Renee August. South African. I live in Cape Town and I work for an organization called The Warehouse. The Warehouse is a non-profit and we work with local churches. Um, we say we inspire, equip and connect leaders in churches to help them more faithfully respond to issues and causes of poverty, injustice and division in their neighborhoods. That sounds incredible, like really great work. I was listening to you at a justice conference, uh, listening to you talking about how justice is so core to our faith. When did that become apparent for you? I think it's always been apparent for me because of where I grew up and um, the time at which I, I guess, lived. Mm -hmm. Um, I I should back up and say I think all theology is contextual. Mm -hmm. And so my context dictated for me, the kind of theology that was required for me to survive. Mm -hmm. Apartheid was a theology before it was a political system. And it was a theology from the church that said I was a second-class citizen and I did not deserve what white people deserved. And it said that because of my skin color, somehow there was some deficit in me or Mm. something wrong with me. And then at the same time, the same scriptures were used to say no to apartheid, to say yes to love and Mm. to say yes to we are all created in the image of God and we're all equal. Yeah. And so, yeah, hearing those conflicting messages as I was growing up, because I'm not white, it Mm. automatically gave me a a lens, a preference, I would say, um, for hearing that I was created in the image of God rather than I was a descendant of an ape. Yeah. So how how do you... You know, with the statement you said, you know, all scripture is contextual. How do we navigate people coming from different contexts and arriving at potentially completely different understandings or conclusions of the Bible? How do we go, actually, okay, you believe this, I believe this, where are we going to meet? I think all of scripture looks like that to me. Mm. We have two creation stories, Mm. not one. Yeah. We have four Gospels. They're not mm. in agreement with one another. The birth of the Gentile church happened because of a disagreement, a theological disagreement between Peter and Paul. Mm. 
And so I don't think scripture is trying to give us one narrative. Yeah. If you read the books of First and Second Chronicles and you read the book of First and Second Kings, you'll see there's two perspectives on Israel having a king. Yeah. One is pro the judge and the prophet, and one is pro the monarch. And they they are not trying to persuade us one way or another. I think what scripture does is invite us into a dialogue mm. um, and into a relationship, one with another and with God where we we do the work of sense making. Yeah. And so I don't think scripture's intending to do that, so I shouldn't intend to do that. Yeah. I don't want to impose on the Bible what it is not seeking to do. Yeah. And then I think when when it comes to disagreement there are two things I find helpful. <clears throat> One is that Jesus um always commands us to love. Mm and never commands us to be right. Mm. There's no biblical requirement for you to be right. Yeah. So it's okay. Yeah, that's great. Just take the pressure off how we disagree. If we can if I can win the argument and win your heart. That's Jesus. Yeah. But if I win an argument but lose your heart, that's not the gospel actually. Mm. So I I then need to do some other work um, in that relatedness. So that's the first thing. The Mm -hmm. second is, um, in terms of this contextual piece, it requires humility. Mm. And I think that's helpful for everyone, especially me, Mm. to just acknowledge, look, from where I'm sitting, this is how I see it. Yeah. But how about you tell me what it looks like from where you're sitting? So it creates curiosity for me. I can only see from my perspective. I cannot see from your perspective. Mm. I need you to see from your perspective Mm. and then be in conversation with me. And in this work of loving one another, we share our perspectives and and allow that process to shape us, to form us, to grow in us the fruit of God's spirit. Yeah, that's really amazing. I think, you know, for me, my takeaway is, you know, like you said, we need each other. Mm. We need God. And it reminds me actually a bit of, when I was, I studied philosophy at uni, and I was talking a bit about the philosophy of language and the idea that language doesn't actually exist mm-hmm. without community. Yeah. And then, in the same sense, it sounds like you're kind of saying, in a way, theology doesn't exist without a community there to have it flourish and mm-hmm. develop together. Yep. So, with the work that you do with the warehouse, building up churches, empowering them to, you know, dive deeper into this theology and to do this work. Mm-hmm. How how have you seen that? develop and change over the years like you said obviously like you came from a background where apartheid was very much a reality mm-hmm. and now today it's you know it's it's moved on it's changed not completely better but it has changed how have you seen your work play a part in that the one practice that we have as a community um in cape town is what we call clad corporate listening and discernment mm. weeks And so we do this four times a year. We stop from the things we're doing and we gather together and we listen to one another. We read scripture together. We pay attention to what's happening outside um, and and even invite voices in that's not part of our echo chamber Mm. as a way of hearing. So what's the spirit stirring? And, you know, if we were to ask the question, what's the time right now? Mm. God uses Kairos time, not Kronos time. Mm. If you were to tell the if you had a watch that told Kairos time, what time would it be right now? 
So just that habit mm. of setting aside time to ask those questions already changes the work we do. Yeah. Because it allows us time to recalibrate, to listen, to say, oh, this is what we think we're hearing. Mm. And then we're able to respond. And then we read scripture again and ask, um, and there's particular questions. We ask, what's the movement of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. From what to what? We ask, what is God doing as prophet, priest, and king? Mm -hmm. The prophet removes blindness and gives new imagination. The priest teaches new practice Mm -hmm. and um, creates culture. And then the king um, role is to give permission. um, What is being celebrated and what is being warned against yeah yeah. and within that process of listening and trying to see what is happening in the time young people play an interesting role within that because they have a perspective they bring a perspective that's Mm -hmm. different uh how how can we best work intergenerationally within this how can we move away from it being a combative sort of i see it this way and i see it this way how can we bring those two perspectives together? Hmm. I think our intention is not to find um, complete agreement and unity in how we see things, but to find ways to appreciate the, the contribution of each person and how that mm. enlarges the picture of what we see God doing and how that invites us to a bigger sort of dream of God for the world? How does this make God's dream for the world bigger? Mm. How does this require more of us? How does this put in our community the responsibility for relationship and collaboration Mm. rather than, oh, no, that's not what we want to do. Yes, this is what we want to do. You know, just sort of bringing together. And I think it's to try and appreciate and celebrate and honor Diversity that seems to be far more present in Scripture and in how God works. Yeah. Peter and Paul in the Council of Jerusalem had a massive disagreement about what the mission of God was to the Jews or to the Gentiles. And they disagreed and went their separate ways. Mm. And praise God. Mm. Praise God. Because that's how the church grew. That's why I have a faith today. Yeah. It's because they weren't trying to choose they needed to do both, and so yeah, the two hold together. So, how do we make then make a distinction between differences of perspective and opinion with things that are causing issues within the church? So, we talked a bit about apartheid, mm-hmm. and how you spoke a bit about how that was not only that wasn't just a, polit- a political economic thing; that was a theological thing. Yeah. So, how do we then safeguard ourselves to make sure? Yes, there's room for every every perspective, but we also need to make sure justice is being upkept. I think the the frame of what I see in scripture is one of relationship and love before one of ideology and doctrine. Mm. When I read the Bible, I don't find a dissertation, you know. Mm. These are the facts of who God is, and this is the names of God, and this is how God works. Mm. It's like the way God works with... Abram is different to how God works with Sarah, is different to how God works with Hagar. Mm. But they are all called to love one another. Mm. 
So how I disagree with you is far more important than what I disagree about if I can violently disagree with you. And I don't mean that in a physical violence yeah. way, but it, like I can go all out and say that is not how I see it. It's not what I agree with. I don't think that's right. Right there is the premise. I don't think it's right. So if you think it's right, then that's on you. Mm. And God is the judge, not mm. me. So the question is, does it grow love in you? And does it grow love in me? And if it doesn't grow love in me, it's not my business to say whether it's going to grow love in you or not. Yeah. Because if it grows love in me, then it means that I then must love. So can you live it? Mm. If you can't live it, then it's too complicated. Stop it. Yeah. Just stop being a fancy pants and <laughs> stick to love your neighbors, you love yourself. Yeah. In the disagreeing one with us. With another. Yeah, and I guess a, a moment in history where that was put truly put to the test was in South Africa post apartheid. Mm-hmm. You know, you have an end of an unjust regime, mm-hmm. and you know, people talk about the the TRC, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. People have different opinions on it and how well it, how well it achieved its goals, etc. But I guess from your perspective, as someone who lived there, how did that play out for you? I think the Truth and Reconciliation Commission happened at a moment in time. And that moment is important to know, that Kairos time. um, There was a lot that happened under the rules of apartheid uh, where people had carte blanche to abuse power. Mm. And... And because it was so segregated, there were a lot of people who just didn't know what was happening. Mm. So a lot of truth was hidden. A lot was hidden. Mm. Deliberately so. And so there was a tendency, an ability, a concern that people would deny the reality of the injustice Mm. and not know the full extent of what really happened. But there's another piece in that the security police in particular had permission to do a whole bunch of things, and people just disappeared. Mm. And so there were families who were just like, I want to know what happened to my daughter. I want to know where you put my son. Tell me what happened to them. Mm. How did they die? A friend of mine's father's body showed up, and his finger was cut off. And, you know different things done to disguise his identity so that they wouldn't be able to identify his body. Mm. And it was through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that he found out what really happened Mm. that brought him a degree of peace and was able to say, okay, that now I understand why they did what they did. You don't have to agree with it, but it brought a, a degree of comfort and solace for people. For others, their family members' bodies were just hidden, thrown in shallow graves, in the bottom of dams, etc. And so they were able to go make memorial in those places, bring closure, because they were like, we don't know if our children are exiled, if they're in another country, or Mm. if they died. And the risk was that they were going to hide all that evidence and all the people who knew things would just remain silent. Yeah. And so the offer of complete truth, full disclosure in exchange for amnesty gave 
families the answers they were looking for, but also gave the country the truth as it was. So no one could deny, oh, apartheid didn't happen, it wasn't so bad, oh, it wasn't too terrible. You were faced with, oh, my gosh, that really happened. Mm. And so in that respect, that was a gift that we needed in that moment. Mm. And then the, I guess, calling it truth and reconciliation was a bit ambitious. I don't think there was an intention that people would hug and kiss and be friends afterwards. Yeah. The other part of what they did was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission then made proposals to the government for what would make for reconciliation. Mm. And there were recommendations, including a wealth tax, looking at how reparations could happen, especially for families where um, some of the stories of what had happened um, when they'd become victims of that. And so... Those were put forward as recommendations for what would make for reconciliation, but the tragedy of the TRC is that the then ANC government under Nelson Mandela didn't move forward with a single one. Mm. They didn't... Yeah, they just did nothing. Um, that report is filed. Desmond Tutu signed it. All the commissioners signed it, went forward as recommendations, and mm. nothing has been done since then. Yeah. There were even people who did not fully disclose. And so the evidence to prosecute them is right there, and the yeah. prosecutions haven't happened. Yeah. So given Mandela's reputation, I would say something else is happening there. There are reasons why it mm. didn't go ahead. I don't know what those are, but I wouldn't lay that at the foot of the failure of a TRC. Yeah. But I can see how some of the language is problematic. I just think it's important to know the whole... Context, and I'm not claiming to know the whole context, yeah. but the pieces that I know helps resolve some of those things for me. Hi guys, I just wanted to take a minute to interrupt to ask if you're enjoying the podcast, if you've been listening for a while, we would love your help in spreading the word. If you could take a screenshot of you listening to the podcast and post it on Instagram, not if you're listening in the car, but if you're listening elsewhere, we would love your help. Tag We Are Tear Fund at We Are Tear Fund. Uh, share it on your stories. We would love more people to hear what we're doing with the podcast. And so if you're enjoying it and would love to spread the word, we'd really appreciate your help. I think the implications of that move all the way up until present day. So, mm -hmm. you know, up in the news quite a lot in the last couple of years has been a lot about land expropriation from white South African farmers. People obviously feel very passionately for and against it. I guess the question I want to ask is how important is it to to make differences in, in, the, pro in the process of justice? So mm -hmm. obviously there was a lot about forgiveness mm -hmm. and, you know, reconciliation. What what is is the step of saying how do we make this right? How important is that to justice? The book of Amos um, reminds us where the prophet calls for um, an end to hypocrisy of worship. Worship without justice is hypocrisy, he says, and and he says, here's what God wants: justice and righteousness. Righteousness is the right relationships that produce justice. Without righteousness, you can't have justice. And so within the TRC and within the South African history, that's a very important 
peace, the system is not right. Mm. The relationships are not right. So it can't produce justice. Mm. So we must make the systems right so that the systems can produce justice. Um, land expropriation without compensation was taught to us by the British. Mm. Um, it was the British governor in 1913 that declared 80% of all the land in South Africa would be for white ownership only. That is land expropriation without compensation. Mm. There have been 17 other land acts in South Africa, including the Group Areas Act. And at no point was there reparations or compensation to black people for any of that. Mm. So it kind of amuses me and saddens me that suddenly when there's a conversation about making reparations to favour black people, that suddenly that's an issue. Mm -hmm. It speaks to the unrighteousness in the system, Mm -hmm. something that's not right in the system that makes that a problem. As we were having a conversation, I said, if I stole your car and came to you three years later and say, hey, Chris, um, I stole your car. I'm really sorry. Please, will you forgive me? Mm-hmm. And then I get in your car and I drive away to my house and you have to walk. Like, that's madness. Yeah. If I gave your car back to you, that wouldn't be reparations. <laughs> that would be me becoming a human being again. Mm. So reparation for me would be, Chris, I stole your car three years ago. I recognize that as a result of you not having a car, you couldn't go to work and so you lost your job. Mm. And this is the loss of income for the six months that you didn't have a job until you found another job. Mm. And then the amount of money you had to live without so that you could save up to buy another car. Mm. If I gave you that, that would be reparation. Yeah. So I'm a little confused about all the hoo-ha when all we're asking for is for the system to be made right. Yeah. We're not asking for reparation. That's a very difficult calculation to make. But we can't expect reconciliation or right relationship when there's not right systems between us. Yeah. So. And I love what you said there about reparation. Always really let's kind of do away with that word. It's about returning to being human. Mm-hmm. And with righteousness as well, it's about returning to right relationships mm-hmm. between everyone. Yep. So with that in mind, knowing that we have to, within the whole system of justice, we have to juggle with so much have to juggle with the oppressed and the oppressor. You have to juggle with forgiveness and making things right, returning to humanness. A big question, but how can the church, (laughs) (laughs) how can we as a church do that better? I would go back to the theology of freedom from slavery, bondage. Mm -hmm. So in Exodus, Pharaoh, you know, the story of Pharaoh oppressing um, especially the Hebrews, mm-hmm. and um, forcing them to build bricks for him. And then it says at some point, because of their rebellion, Pharaoh forced them to build bricks without straw. Mm. So there's this quota system. You must still make the same amount of bricks. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to today, maybe. I mean, there are people who 
work in coffee plantations who get paid, and I've visited some of them, they get paid um, $2 for every basket of berries they pick. Mm. So they just start first thing. They can't start earlier than 6 in the morning, and they just pick berries, pick berries, pick berries, fill up their baskets. And every time they have a full basket, that's another $2. Mm. They go and they pick berries. and So... When you are enslaved or when you're trapped in an unjust economic system, your value is measured by what you are able to produce. Mm. That's what slavery does to you. Mm. You're reduced to five baskets of berries a day or 20 bricks without straw. And so God is very opinionated about human beings who are reduced to what they're able to produce. Mm. Your value is infinite because you're made in the image of God. Yeah. And so when I reduce that to what you are able to produce, to production, then that's an abomination. Mm. You'll notice in the scriptures God is very opinionated about that yeah. and acts against the one who is diminishing the value of another. And so I think similarly today, if I reduce you to what, you are able to produce then I'm enslaving you Mm. whether what you produce is a piece of land or a million pounds or 50 pounds Mm. if our production determines our value then we are all enslaved yeah and so for the church to be a place where we are valid because we bear the image of the living God. For the church to be a place where we are celebrated, for who we are, if the church is the place where at least there we get the systems right. To model to society, here's what it could look like for us to get, go and have good relationships that produce justice. Mm. Then society gets a glimpse of, oh, oh, that's what God is like. Mm. So, yeah, I think everything we need is right there. It's just very difficult to do. Yeah. Because of how much I am still enslaved. Mm. And my need and greed to measure and yeah. do that kind of work. So, yeah, still need God to, yeah. and to I get, free me. Yeah, and I guess until everyone does get that freedom Mm -hmm. or lives in that freedom that is available to us Mm -hmm. these systems will always be intact Mm -hmm. and i wonder from your perspective is that do you think what jesus meant when he said the poor will always be with you (laughs) or is that something completely different (laughs) it is possible to say what jesus said and not mean what jesus meant Mm. Um, if we want to understand what Jesus means better, we have to read the book of Deuteronomy mm. multiple times. You don't hear that a lot. <laughs> you don't Just hear people say that a gotta lot. You've got to read Deuteronomy. You can't get Jesus. You don't understand the Gospels if you don't know Deuteronomy. Mm. It was required of every Jewish child to memorize that book. And so in so many places, the audience the hearers of the stories, those who are present in the moments when Jesus is acting, know the book of Deuteronomy. Mm. And so in Deuteronomy, I think it's 16, you can check, it says, 
for the poor will always be with you, therefore do not close your hand to the poor. So Judas is upset about an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. He's like, oh, that was so expensive, Lord. We could have sold that and given the money to the poor. Like, we could have sold that and been generous to the poor. And Jesus is like, buddy, you must always be generous to the poor. Whether you have a valuable alabaster jar or only one pair of shoes, we are all required to be generous to the poor all the time. Mm -hmm. That's more what Jesus meant than, oh, don't worry about working for the alleviation of poverty because the poor will always be with us. Mm. And if you solve poverty, you're going to make Jesus a liar, so don't do that. <laughs> Reading the Bible is not for casual consideration. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Scripture says study, mm -hmm. meditate, read. And so we don't do ourselves favors when we become casual readers of the Bible and and especially not when we casually develop doctrine based on one verse that's out of context yeah and from what I'm hearing in this conversation as well is you can't develop that in with one perspective it requires a global community to develop a, a, a well-rounded theology um yeah I would say yes and no Global is a bit generous because not all of us can travel around the world. Mm -hmm. And certainly not the people who were reading the Bible in that time. Um, who the Bible was written for was certainly not a global audience. Mm -hmm. I would say that as we read the Bible, we must remember, especially if we speak English, that we are a minority. Europe is a minority. Mm -hmm. When you talk about black people, they're not minorities. Mm -hmm. There are more black people in the world than white people. Mm -hmm. Asians are not minorities, very definitely not minorities. Mm -hmm. There are more people in Asia than anywhere else in the world put together. So, you know, Mandarin is the most spoken language. Mm -hmm. Spanish and French are right up there. Um, I don't want to get into a competition. <laughs> yeah. But... If we speak English, whether it's second, third, or fourth language, or first language, there's a way we have to hold what we read, I think, that requires a humility to say, this is from where I see it. Based on my experience and my perspective, I bring this lens to what I'm seeing. Mm. Which then allows everybody to bring their perspective and creates the opportunity to appreciate difference again. I guess, to say, I get that you see it that way. But I see it this way. Yeah. And that those two views don't have to be aggressive or force me to choose, but to say, I grew up in South Africa where the Bible was used to fight injustice. Mm -hmm. That has given me a particular perspective on how I read scripture and how I understand the work of God in the world. Yeah. And I recognize that not everybody sees it that way. And that's okay. Yeah. I just have to acknowledge, that's how I see it. And I can't expect you to see it through my lens because we don't have the same life experience. Yeah. We don't have the same worldview. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't say global perspective. I would just say humility. Yeah. Recognizing that we all bring different perspectives. But also, don't make your issue everybody else's issue. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're bringing a European perspective, say, hey, this is how we see it in Europe. But we recognize we're a minority in the world. Mm. So help us understand how other people see it. Yeah. I think that could help. Good.
So those were some brilliant words of wisdom from Renee. Really challenging and also quite a lot deeper and yes. theological <laughs> in terms of the perspective than we've had in, in some previous kind of interviews before. So you guys um, were both in the room during this interview. Yeah. What, what struck you? Well, I think Renee struck me, <laughs> like intellectually. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like she's a love, she's a lovely lady. Like yeah. she's really great, and she's got a lot of time for people. And obviously, that's you know, part of what she does in her work. But it was just interesting having a conversation. There were so many times where it's like uh, I would say something, and it's just like, nah, that's the wrong way to look at it. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I really, I think the sense that I got from her is that she's so loving and so caring but she walks in authority. Mm. Like, she just carries so much authority. And I think, being a woman, like, you can really look up to that. Mm. Like, she's so inspiring, and, like, how she just carries herself. And a lot of her, obviously, a lot of her stuff that she does is um, talking to churches in South Africa to bring connection with Jesus and what just as actually meant to Jesus mm. and and one of the things that she talked about in one of our lunches actually is looking at the Bible through the lens of justice and so I, I asked her because I know she does a lot of work in that and I said you know how how can we do that and she did she gave one of those responses like actually the reality is for us living in places like you know the UK is that we'll never naturally be able to look at the Bible through the lens of justice, and we will actually have to try really hard to position ourselves because we this isn't reality for us. But for so many people around the world, reading the Bible is the reality that this is what they're going through now, yeah. and this is the reality for them. This is the, their every day. Mm. So actually, when they look at the Bible, they look at the Bible as you know our God is a just God, mm. and you know she made a really good point on the podcast is that we don't understand Jesus if we don't know the book of Deuteronomy and so I think for me as well like as probably for many around you know the UK like we forget that you know we focus on Jesus and the New Testament and we forget that Jesus was living by the Old Testament and actually the things that he was saying he was quoting the Old Testament so we sometimes we need to deeper and actually look into the things that he says because a lot of the time is quoting the Old Testament yeah. and actually we need to go back and read the whole thing and understand exactly what he meant like she was saying you know we sometimes take for what he actually says but what did he mean yeah and I think linked to that it's like well she said it at the beginning and at the end of the conversation about coming to the bible with a sense of humility of mm. being like I do not own this, I do not own these words I do not own like what it what that conclusion mm. is actually there isn't necessarily a conclusion which is like quite a, like a radical thing to say in like a a UK theological space like yeah. forget your conclusions the, no one owns the bible in that sense but I think it's really important and I think it shows that actually when we take in different perspectives and like you said for us like sometimes we're going to have to do more work to take in other perspectives uh, but you're going to come out with not necessarily like the number one answer but you're going to come out with a better understanding of how God relates to different people's lives whether that be people living in extreme poverty or people outside of that who are trying to help end extreme poverty so yeah I thought it was a really challenging conversation and I thought like I joke about her like being like nah you're wrong but um, <laughs> like in that same sense she was just kind of like opening my eyes to other perspectives mm. uh, so hopefully that's what people get from the conversation 
Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. We'll be back again on the 30th of March, where we'll be hearing from Pete Gregg, writer, church leader, and founder of the 24-7 movement. If you like what you heard today, make sure you hit subscribe and follow us on Instagram at We Are Tear Fund.